Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. Today I'm joined again by Sigma the Artist. We are going to be hosted today on Christcord, a Christian Discord server. If you would like to join discord.gg forward slash Christian, discord.gg forward slash Christian. Today we're going to be talking about a theological grab bag, which is a collection of topics. We're like, hey, why don't we talk about this for a bit? Uh, One of the things that Sigma wanted to talk about in particular was Acts chapter 5. Uh, I wanted to compare and contrast the Ark of the Covenant to communion, and we'll get into whatever other topics end up coming up. So let's get started first with the Acts chapter 5 discussion. Do you want to read the, the entire chapter of Acts, or should should we look at a particular uh, portion of it? I'm sure. I could summarize it if you want to, but I think it's a bit of a read, but I think I can quickly uh, read through it. Yeah. All right, so... Acts chapter 5, this is the ESV. But a man named uh, Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you have sold a land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down out of his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Sounds pretty rough, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, um, so, yeah, lie to God and he'll strike you dead. Is that, is that the, uh, the takeaway here? Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, you know, growing up sort of uh, more in the non-denominational realm and the evangelical realm, we like to put a lot of emphasis on the, on the very loving, nurturing, very uh, warm blanket side of God. You know, the things that Jesus often... Uh, embodied when he was dealing with people right um whether it's the woman at the well whether it's uh him dealing with the adulterous woman who was caught in adultery preparing to be stoned to death Mm -hmm. there's a lot of examples of jesus being a you know great healer comforter um being a great uh foil for people to go to and whenever they're feeling anxiety whenever they're feeling um great turmoil as sort of a um a sort of a link to a very heartfelt very understanding personality and yet here we are in the new testament not long after christ's ascension with the uh with a extremely spirit-filled community of believers and you get a glimpse of the old <laughs> testament god um and how he dealt with Uh, sinners back in the Old Testament, striking down a person and his wife for lying to not only the apostles, but primarily to the Holy Spirit. And when people read this verse, there's an immediately, there's an immediate sense of like dread and anxiety. Um, And I think it's something that a lot of people are taken aback about, especially if they grow up in an environment where Jesus is portrayed as a very, uh, very heartfelt, very understanding and merciful Hi- hippie Jesus personality. Yeah, Hi- hippie Jesus. Two, two where flip, he, he takes everything. Jesus. He'll never do anything. Right. And so even my even I was taken aback because I because you know, reading through the Bible, it's like you think you know it, even if you've read it all the way through, and yet you go back and you're like, Wow, I, I don't <laughs> even remember this. This is interesting. Um well, how how many examples can you even think of in the New Testament where God directly kills somebody? I mean, Jesus doesn't doesn't go around, you know, smiting people left and right. 
Um, no, right. no, granted, the Old Testament happened over the, the course of thousands of years, so if you condense that all down to the period of, you know, say 50 years, 100 years for the New Testament, um, you shouldn't expect to see all kinds of people getting smited left and right. But at the same time, it is it is kind of jarring that you have, you know, you've got the gospel accounts, Jesus is telling parables and 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 dying on the cross for the sins of others and stuff. And then in Acts chapter 5, you have this example of somebody somebody feeling the full brunt of the law and and being killed directly by God, two people being killed directly by God. It It is jarring. I can't, I'm trying to think of other examples off the top of my head, and I'm, I don't know that I can come up with any uh, in the New Testament. I think this is case. primarily the, the only example in the, well, actually, there are uh, examples of the people who, partake of the Eucharist in an unworthy manner and they fell oh, sick. Oh, that's, that's right. You know, <laughs> you're getting ahead of, ahead of the game. Those are, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I'll, I'll get into that later. That's first Corinthians chapter, chapter 11. Uh, yeah. People are right. dying from but, taking it. Right. But in a general sense, the primary theme that you see in the new Testament is that, you know, God is gracious. He is slow to anger and he is forgiving. And then you get this, immediate contrast of Acts chapter five. And even, like I said, the first uh, Corinthians verses about the unworthy manner of uh, taking communion. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people have had to deal with this sort of what they view as a uh, dichotomy at worst, a contradiction right, right. Um, of, you know, G the son's nature uh, versus the father, you know, many people sort of separate the two as the son is the gracious sort of brotherly, uh, side of God's person to us, and the Father is the stern, uh, <laughs> is the old, the old God the, and new God, the old God the versus the new God, right? Yeah, uh, neglecting the fact that they are the same, kinder, kinder, but, gentler God. Yeah, and so, um, going through this, you have to not only look at both the context, but also the uh, the lesson of the uh of the event because acts itself is a his, is primarily a, a historical account of the early church um penned i believe by luke if i'm correct yeah it's um, the second half of the of luke's gospel account it's book correct two, it and <clears throat> right and it's and its primary its primary purpose is to be a uh historical account of the events of the historic church and how it was conducted after the ascension of jesus and so, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, even my theology professor told me, it's like, you got to be careful about taking theology from Acts since it's a very, it's more, it's a very descriptive uh, account rather than prescriptive, which I'm not even sure I fully agree with, but um, Acts is a very interesting one. You know, that's where you get a whole bunch of charismatic theology, um, but I digress. And <laughs> so the, so how does one like, reconcile this seemingly isolated incident of God immediately uh, bestowing the punishment of the law and the uh, the result of sin onto a person um, without seemingly giving them a chance for forgiveness or a chance to repent. And I think you can look at it from many different angles. Um, the history behind this is that this is during a time uh, in Acts where the church is extremely, um, extremely new, but extremely uh, potent in the spirit. Like it is a very pure, very uh, uh, united church. And uh, thus it is considered to be a united uh, front that had very little blemishes, if any at all because it was primarily being led uh, personally by the apostles soon after Christ. So when you have this, when you have this couple that willfully, uh, that willfully conspire with each other to sin to, against to cheat Peter, God, to, to cheat yeah. God, essentially, yeah. because their sin wasn't that they held a portion of their um, portion of their uh, prophets back. That wasn't what the sin was. The sin was telling uh, Peter and thus the Holy Spirit within Peter that this was the full amount that they had received through selling the property when it wasn't. The, that was the lie to the Holy Spirit that caused them to fall dead. 
because he even says that, you know, Peter tells him that your profits are yours. You can do with it what you will. You didn't even have to give it to any of us. But since the church at that time was at an all-time um, high in terms of uh, gracious charity and giving to each other, it was very tightly knit. So nobody was without, nobody was uh, with need that wasn't taken care of. So it was a very pure uh, time for the church. And to have this uh, couple come down and to basically uh, pollute that purity, um, one you could say that that is what led to God having to essentially intervene for the sake of the church body. And, and I, so, um, so I, I would say I, I would say that that's definitely that's definitely part of it. In so in the early church, like you were talking about, the there's a lot more immediate. Re resolution, I would say. So you've got like the Jerusalem Council and stuff, but there's a lot more re immediate resolution mm -hmm. where we say, okay, well, what is this teaching really about? Well, let's ask one of the apostles, not that the apostles are omniscient, but that they're, you know, that they're sent, that's what the word apostle means, the sent one from God. So um, if they're representing God and you're sinning against God by, by lying, that, you know, that's that's a direct sin Directly against God. But I think that there's, in, in let, me, let me look up the exact verse in Acts 5, because I think, Part of it, 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 it's not just, it's not just that uh, God is acting directly. Um, it's verse, verse eleven. So, so uh, Ananias and Sapphira die. Verse eleven says, "And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things." So, this wasn't a private event. I think part of this is an example. God does make examples of of people, both both the good and bad. You know, David is a man after his own heart. The example is made. You know. But not only of the punishment for his sin, but also of God's forgiveness and, and love to him. Abraham and and any of the lineage of you know the the seed of salvation, they were made as examples of of God's love and forgiveness. And in this case, I think in addition to you know an immediate sort of where we have the purity of the church is so great that somebody who walked with God literally uh, a couple of years ago, they can you know you can go and speak to Peter in person. It's also I think. I think this is kind of showing showing people something about God. The God of the Old Testament is not gone. This is the God of the Church of the New Testament is the same God of the God of the Israelites. Correct. And this is what the takeaway for many theologians was uh, when I was researching this through several different perspectives, is that it's not the actual act of um, Ananias and his wife being struck down that is the takeaway it is the reaction of the church body that is the primary uh, lesson that we be taking, which is that don't screw with God. Like <laughs> God is not one to be tested. You know, as Jesus pointed out, when Satan came to test him, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And these uh, and this couple specifically set out to do that, where they wanted to appear more holy than they were, and they were testing the limits of uh, God's mercy and that they actively took his uh, gift of grace and his gift of mercy and decided to test it anyway. And that sort of leads me to my, uh, to my uh, thoughts about how can we reconcile this seemingly uh, vengeful, harsh punishment of God with the New Testament themes of mercy and grace and the law of uh, liberty and the law of grace. Because um, after all, there are several verses, especially in the Old Testament, that talks about the fear of the Lord. And even in the New Testament, for example, you have, you know, uh, Psalm 111, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Proverbs 9.10, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And this is repeated several times throughout Proverbs. In fact, it is repeated, I believe, four to five times. Mm -hmm. where it's the same, almost the exact same phrase. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 15.33, for the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. So there is a big emphasis in the book of wisdom, being Proverbs, about fearing the Lord. And, you know, some people will try to, will try to fluff it up and say, well, you know, it's sort of like the same fear of, you know, not wanting to upset your parent, not wanting to grieve them. You know, if you do something wrong, 
you 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 don't want to see them upset or sad, right? And while that is true, God the Father relates himself to an earthly father many times, just as Jesus relates relates himself to a brother uh, when he talks to us, because that is a language we understand. But the thing is, <laughs> your earthly father cannot condemn your soul. So, and that's what he talks about in the New Testament, where he says, do not fear the one who can kill your body, but fear the one who can uh, send your soul into the hellfire. Who, who can, who can kill your body and soul in hell. Yeah. Right. Which both of them. And so Jesus is referring to himself there. Exactly. And so, um, but then you also read that there's this sort of dichotomy and understanding, uh, about fear, which is that, you know, you can look at the verses about, um, where he says per perfect love casts out all fear. Yeah. You can look at, uh, second thessalonians three sixteen. now may the peace of uh the lord himself give you peace at all times in every way the lord be with you all you can even look in uh isaiah 26 3 uh you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed to you because he trusts in you um there are several verses going along this line and i think uh isaiah points out a very good distinction here which is that uh in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you I think there's a very real link that one can point out between trusting the Lord and fearing the Lord. Because if you think about it, the fear of the Lord is obedience. That is primarily its uh, instruction is that we would fear the Lord and that would lead us to obedience. But true obedience comes with trusting the Lord. And I think part of that is trusting his promise. And part of his promise is that he is just. And he is faithful to forgive us when we repent. And um, because oftentimes you think about, if you just took this set of verses in isolation, then you get an image of God that he wants you to mess up. He's constantly looking for you to slip up. He's constantly looking for you to uh, commit any sort of sin so that he can immediately smite you and basically erase you from his presence. Like he can't stand you. Like he, he, he doesn't want to save you. And so in our minds, that is a mindset that keeps people sort of away from God, away from repentance. When he says specifically, it is my kindness that leads people to repentance. So I think the another theme of the story that we can take is that Ananias and, uh, and uh, Sapphira, Sapphira, they were not trusting in the Lord, even though from the, from the surrounding texts, they were genuine converts. They seem to be actual members of the church community. And so with that status, to not only willfully, but to earnestly uh, distrust the Lord in your testing of him, I think that is primarily what uh, the Lord found so offensive. And I think that's sort of the takeaway we can also uh, come back with from this story. What you're describing kind of reminds me, as, as you were describing about this God who kind of sits sits over us in judgment. And there, I mean, God is a judge, but that his whole goal, the reason he put us here is to to catch us and smite us when we're doing something bad. Uh, it reminds me of kind of the the medieval concept of of Jesus. There, there's these famous depictions uh, on altarpieces of Jesus, the God, you know, sitting sitting on a rainbow, hurling lightning bolts at all the little sinners. This was one of the arguments that the Roman Catholics had against against the Lutherans, as I said, that you're, you know, Lutherans are antinomians. You can't tell people that that works aren't part of their salvation because then they'll stop doing good works. They thought it was actually a good thing for people to live in fear that they'll get smited at any moment as a result of doing as a result of doing not enough good works or doing any any bad works at all. I said, you can't just keep preaching all this love and, and forgiveness stuff because then people won't won't follow the law. And perhaps to a degree that's true, but in reality, the Christian doesn't follow the law because he's afraid of God hitting him with a lightning bolt. He follows the law because he loves God and because he loves his neighbor. It's love that, it's the fruit of the Spirit that comes and grows out of, of faith, but faith is at the root of it all. The, the proper fear is is fear and faith. Indeed, and there's a, there's a real link between faith and trust because the because when you come to Christ, uh, 
immediately you have to take upon the law of faith, which is trusting in his word. And when you trust in his word, that leads you to want to obey it because you trust that it is true and you trust that it is good. So in that sense, when um, a person is a, a claims to be a believer uh, and yet they unabashedly, unashamedly commit sin that is explicitly forbidden in the Bible and they do it constantly without a heart of repentance and they, they can't even claim ignorance. Um, they know that this is uh, forbidden in the Bible and, you know, they try to make as many excuses about it as possible to try and justify it. But it's clear that they do not have a repented heart because they do not trust the words of God. They do not trust in the promises of God. And in the same way, a Christian who is constantly fearful of the wrath of God, the the idea that Jesus is just hovering over you 24-7, staring you down <laughs> into your soul, just waiting to send it into the void as soon as you as soon as you commit some sin bad enough, where he's just like, Yeah, I'm done with you. You know, be gone from me, sinner. It's in the same way, you're you're distrusting the Lord's will to want you to be saved. You're distrusting the promise that Jesus said when he said, believe in me and trust in me, be baptized so that you may be saved. Jesus makes several promises to us that perfect love casts out all fear and that his mercy endureth forever and that mercy triumphs over judgment as James uh, articulates. So in all circumstances, God desires mercy over judgment, but he, but when it, when you forsake that promise when you decide to lose your trust in that promise and you're just like oh you know god doesn't mean what he says god's promise is is not what he says i'm not going to trust in his promise to forgive i'm not going to trust in his promise to forgive me either because you feel like you don't deserve it which you don't <laughs> and yet god still promises yeah. it anyway um this is what keeps us from repentance and I've gone through this journey many times, uh, you know, especially when it comes to habitual sin or repeated sin, that feeling of shame and guilt, when you let it consume you to the point where you keep yourself away from God, because you come to a point where you're just like, there's no point. There's no point in coming to this perfect God who won't accept me because I keep doing this thing, which I truly do not want to do. And yet I keep doing it. Why? Why do I constantly come back to this? Am I really saved? Am I really, you know, in God's family? I might as well just give up and not even try anymore. And that's something that I've heard many Christians have gone through where eventually the, the, the burden of trying to be perfect gets to them and they eventually give up and they leave the faith altogether. And that is something that I do not believe is a, is a result of Christian faith. I do not believe that that is something that is either fruitful or beneficial for a, or a mindset for a believer to have. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's interesting that you bring this up in particular. This, this last Sunday, we had um, the par parable of the prodigal son. For those who use the historic one-year lectionary, parable of the prodigal son, we had, I think it was Psalm 103, and we had Micah 7. Micah 7, I mean, so a parable of the prodigal prodigal son is all about this undeserving sinner who has no right to go back to his father at all. He decides he's going to go back and try to be a slave, but he goes back and his father forgives him before he's even able to strike a deal with him. But Micah 7, 8, 9, since I've got this, I still have my sermon in front of me, it says, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression, the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Uh, so yeah, there's, I think that there's, that there's two lies here. One, the two lies that, um, two misconceptions that, that people fall into. One of the misconceptions is, uh, is what Ananias and Sapphira uh, had is, well, you know, it's no big deal. Cheat the church, cheat God, whatever. It's no big deal. Um, the other lie is, well, it's unforgivable. Uh, and, and I say that these, in the sermon, I, I pointed out that these are the two lies that the devil likes to tell the most. First, to the person before the sin. The sin is not a big deal. Go ahead and do it. 
And then, you know, that tricks him into doing it. And once the person has committed the sin, the devil then comes right back and says, you know, the sin that you did, it's so horrible and miserable. It's so disgusting. It's so, you know, you repeat it so many times that you are obviously not saved. And God obviously has, he wants nothing to do with you. So don't you dare, don't you dare go back to God because he will smite you on the spot. And, and he will absolutely not forgive you. God is only a God of wrath and a God of judgment. And both of these, both of these are lies. The, the flip side to this is when you have faith, I, I say that faith and, and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. If you're repentant, then you have faith. If you have faith, then you're going to be repentant. Um, if you have faith and repentance then you're going to run to God, even if that means that God strikes you down. Even if that means, for example, if you're David and you committed adultery and murder, you go to God, and even if that means that God kills your son, you still praise that God. You say, you know what? I deserve worse than that, but thanks be to God. I'll see my son one day in heaven, but thanks be to God that I have, I have a merciful God. And you, and you go to God, and he will surprise you with his grace and with his mercy and with his love. And the idea is that the death of Christ on the cross doesn't apply to you because your sin is too bad, as if you could out-sin God's love for you. It's laughable. It's absurd. Tone down the ego a little bit. Your sin may be awful. It may be repeated, but God's whole thing, <laughs> his whole thing for you as a Christian is, is forgiveness. Correct. And there's this, and you know, both sides are made very clear and are and are emphasized in the scriptures like um the amount of times that hell is mentioned um it's quite a bit especially you know in the new testament and old testament but the the i think the most repeated word in the scripture is love like love is the most emphasized point about god in the scriptures and many people you know again when it comes to the when it comes to the people who think that oh this new age you know you know uh this new age uh uh hippie sort of view of jesus it's it's so ridiculous it's so heretical and it's so awful we got to go in the complete opposite direction and only talk about god's wrath so that we can guilt people into becoming better and it's the problem is, is that, well, yes, God's judgment is talked about many times. Much more talked about is his grace and his mercy. And a good example of this is, you know, Paul talks greatly about both his mercy and his judgment. Uh, for example, when he talks about, you know, work through your salvation with fear and trembling, while in the same time, um, you see verses like in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As well as, uh, I think it is also again in Hebrews where it says that, do we not have a high priest in heaven, speaking about Jesus, who can, uh, who can understand our weakness and in all ways still feels love and still provides grace for us. And so... Um, while it is true, we need to make sure to constantly emphasize that just because you are under the law of grace does not give you permission to sin because, uh, as Paul would constantly tell people who mistook his message and he had to deal with this many times, he's not saying that God's grace and his mercy gives you license to sin because a true Christian who has a true regenerative, regenerative faith would not want to naturally sin he will naturally want to move away from that and further exude the fruit of the spirit and so um to go in to go uh full extremist in either way i don't think is either fruitful or uh edifying for a congregation nor is it biblical so yeah um, the, i also the... oh go ahead no um i was gonna sort of shift the subject a little bit but if you wanted to go another um yeah thought of so I would say in homiletics classes, this is uh, where it teaches us about teaches us about preaching. That's what homiletics is. Uh, one of the books that we're supposed to read is CFW Walther's Law and Gospel. And if you Google it, you can find a free PDF online. It's a proper distinction between law and gospel. Law is, you know, it shows you your your sin. It says this is where you've fallen short 
of the glory of God. Uh, and then the gospel, law is what you should have done and what you have to do and what you didn't do and what, and what is coming to you uh, for that. And gospel is your forgiveness and what God has done for you. So law is what you should do. Gospel is what God, God did for you. And in, in, in Lutheran homiletics classes, the idea is that you teach, you do not, do not just do gospel only. Do not just do law only. You do law and gospel. You properly divide the two. You don't mush them up together. They're not the same thing. Um, and you properly divide, I mean, there's, yeah. So the, you properly divide the two, but the gospel should predominate. So yes, you should tell people that they have sinned, that they should repent of their sin. A direct call to repentance in, in a sermon is usually a pretty good thing, but it should end with the the grace of God, the love of God, the death of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Law and gospel, yes, but gospel predominates. Maybe not in words, and you know, maybe you have more words talking about the law, talking about certain types of sin, but the gospel needs to needs to be the final blow. Um, Blue Link is talking. So Blue Link brings up something. Blue Link is somebody in the chat right now, uh, and, and they ask um, they ask about church discipline. Um, somebody in the church versus somebody out of the church. If there are kind of different standards held to believers and, and non-believers. Uh, you condemn the sin, he says, you condemn the sin, sin of a believer in the hardest way than the sin of a non-believer, a harder way than the sin of a non-believer because, because they know better. What, what do you think about that? Do you want me to take it first? That is definitely uh, true because Tal specifically talks about this when it comes to uh, not only talking about the sin outside the church, but judging the people outside the church. He says, what standard can we judge them outside of the church because they do not believe in our standard so how can we tell them uh this is wrong if they don't even believe in the premise of our morality to begin with um and we want to bring them to the gospel and we want to do it in the most efficient way possible and simply telling them you're wrong you're in sin repent that's that's never been a winning strategy for a lot of people in the same way that you know when he talks about a new convert when a new convert comes into the church you have to give them the soft food you have to give them basically the baby food because they are they are still weak in the faith in a way they they're still trying to understand everything they don't have a full formulation of you know what is sin what is you know the things in my life that has to change so you got to sort of spoon feed the soft food to them at first and then uh the advanced stuff comes later so in that sense, yeah, when you're a Christian for a certain amount of years and you have optimal time to not only study, to not only uh, reflect and to uh, train yourself, 100%, you should be held at a higher standard in the same way that God talks about those who decide to be teachers will be held at a very high standard because what you say to other people and how you influence others is going to be... Uh, held against you if you were um correct or not so yes we do hold people to a different standard when they are believers and i think that's again the uh theme of acts 5 um 1 through 11 which is that these people seem to be uh genuine believers who were in the fold of god who committed an atrocious sin and were made examples of but and this is actually this actually sort of perfectly leads into what I wanted to uh, talk about, which is uh, many of the theologians that I looked up uh, when studying uh, this specific passage and looking for commentaries on it. Um, a lot of them say that even though they were smited by God, that does not mean that they were damned. It, they could still be saved. It was in a way a mercy killing for God to stop them so that they couldn't further pollute their pollute their own souls or pollute the church around them because it talks about how satan filled their heart uh to commit them to do this and i think this is uh one of the few times in the new testament where it talks about how satan filled his heart or uh entered into his heart um i think the same example is given to uh judas so maybe this could be an example of possession some have said um, but, uh, yeah, I want to get your thoughts on it. Do you think that they, even though they were struck down by God, could they still be saved? Well, I, yeah, I don't see any indication in, in the scripture that they were necessarily damned. I mean, it, they, they were, they were put to death and we do have other examples. We have, I mean, da David's son, I keep coming back to this. David's son is put to death for the sin of David. That doesn't necessarily mean 
either David or David's son went to hell. Um, this actually, so this is a, I would say that this is a perfect segue. It's, it's fortuitous that, that both of us kind of had similar thoughts of things we wanted to talk about today. Uh, I actually, I'm going to segue this into first Chronicles 13. This is, this is Uzzah and the Ark. Um, actually, you know, yeah, Uzzah and the Ark. So, um, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament carried around some stuff in it, and 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 God sat on the mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The two angels kind of, they they were bowed over the Ark of the Covenant, the golden angels on top, and their wings touched, and that that seat of that space above that was was supposed to be the the seat of God. So it was significant, not not because it was a magical holy box, but because this is where God chose to chose to dwell and 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 be with be with his people. And the Ark of the Covenant was unfortunately abused fairly frequently in the Old Testament. It was captured and people started treating it as, you know, as a good luck charm or whatever. But there's this, there's this instance of somebody transporting the Ark uh, and, and something unfortunate happens. I'm going to read it from First Chronicles. Uh, I think it's in Samuel as well. First Chronicles chapter 13, verses 5 and following. And I think that the mm, same yes, sort of thing, Uzzah, uh, the same sort of thing mm-hmm. is is true here as it would be for Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, verse 5 and following. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebohamath to bring the Ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David, let me see. Uh, and David and all Israel went up to Bala, uh, that is to Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which they called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. So that's the mercy seat I'm talking about. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio uh, were driving the cart. And David and, the Is- and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, the song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. So I'm going to pause right there for a second. If you've ever seen um, Indiana Jones and what was the first one called? Um, Raiders of the Lost Raiders Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. There you go. Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. At a, at a certain point, when they're when they're lifting the Ark of the Covenant out of the box, they put these long poles in the in the side of the Ark of the Covenant and they lift it up. The Ark of the Covenant was made to be carried by people. It was made to be. Think about pallbearers. It was kind of like that. It was made to be carried by people, yeah. not chuck on chucked on the back of a uh, an ox cart and and dragged around like some piece of I don't know. So like some I don't know like your luggage, right? So right. this is bad. They should not be doing this. This is a bad situation, and bad consequences arise from the bad situation. Um, so Uzzah and Ahio are um, are leading the cart. It's a new cart, but still, you know. All right, verse 9 and following. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put his hand on the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark, remain, the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in the house for three months, and the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. All right, so this guy reaches out, and the, the ark is going to possibly fall fall down um now in the military uh we've got this thing where we're obsessed with flags guidons sometimes we call them and the idea is you know if if an american flag or if your guidon ever touches the ground it's some great sacrilege you have to do so many push-ups or correct you, know, yes. you, get, you get absolutely smoked multiply this by about a million and that's and that's how bad it would be if somebody drops the ark of the covenant that being said Uzzah was not given permission and there are special laws regarding this to touch to touch the ark of the covenant even if he was doing it for a good purpose so Uzzah was wrong in putting the ark of the covenant on an ox cart he had good intentions with trying to to stop the ark from falling but he still broke god's law so your intent does not cancel out what god's law is uh, and God gave his law for a reason, and Uzzah paid the price for breaking it. That is not to say that Uzzah acted in blasphemy and that Uzzah was sent straight to hell. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, I imagine we'll see Uzzah when we're, we're in heaven, and he, he's having a good laugh about how much of an idiot he was. Um, but I, I think a similar case, this might be a comparable case. If Ananias and Sapphira were Christian converts, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that they went to hell. We have no reason to necessarily doubt their faith. Now, they sinned directly. Uzzah sinned as well, but they, they sinned kind of more intentionally. 
I don't know if they sinned more intentionally, but you know what I'm saying. And God still struck right. them dead, but that isn't necessarily to say that God sent them to hell. The consequences of sin is often death. The consequences of of sin may even be the earthly consequences of sin may be the death of a, of another person. If one person murders another, the murderer is the one committing the sin, but the other person is the one suffering from the sin. Correct. I mean, and they they, yeah. they draw links to the verses talking about the sin that leads to death, while the sins that do not lead to death, where he says, you know, some sins lead to death, but not all. Yeah, murder leads to death. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, suicide uh, leads to death, too. Uh, but that's not to say that there aren't others. There are, I mean, and so in the pre, in the past, I kind of understood that verse. It, talking about the sins that lead to death is that there's kind of a, a spiritual death, but it can also be very, very practical. In the practical sense, it's absolutely true. There's some sins that you commit against others where they don't die as a result. But there are other sins where if you're stealing from somebody to the point where they starve to death, uh, you could absolutely be killing somebody with your sin. Evil does have consequences, mm. temporal consequences. Right. And again, this is the Ark of the Covenant where the Spirit of the Lord was literally dwelling literally dwelling and so in the same way uh if you look at the uh procession for the uh high priests in israel and how they would approach the temple of the lord the presence of the lord it was so holy and so potent in uh the spirit of the lord that they would it, it was very particular how they had to enter his courts and how they uh had to proceed to uh uh, receive uh, the mercy of the Lord to give the sacrifice for the remissions of sins for the Israelites. And if they messed up through no willful sin of their, no willful disobedience of their own, it could just be an accident, but they would be struck down and they would be dead so much so that they tied a rope around priests every time they went in, because if they felt a sudden slack in the rope, that means they were struck down. They messed up somehow. So they had to pull them out. I think they had so, bells on them too. If I'm, I don't, I don't oh, know yeah. where I'm remembering this, but it was yeah. If you if you heard them fall over, <laughs> then you pull Correct. out the body. And and a large part of that is because, um, at least in my mind, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but because we are polluted with sin, uh, especially our physical bodies, um, we have no. Uh, we have no right or no ability to be in the presence of the Lord without specific instructions on a safe way to do so. No matter how our attentions are, the Lord gives us these instructions for our own good to keep us safe because, again, his presence is so holy that no person has ever even seen him with their own eyes in a way like he's standing right in front of me and I can see him physically i can see his face because it would burn them up immediately he is that holy and so in the in the case of uh usa i got that name right correct yeah i believe it's usa yeah so um you know even though his intentions were good he was still a an an imperfect being trying to touch the presence of perfection and complete holiness and to put it simply the human cannot comprehend or uh maintain that state of presence they would just burn up and so um one could look at it the same way uh in terms of ananias and sapphira that uh because the spirit was so potent at that time um their sin came to the point where they their imperfect blot offended the perfect uh presence of the spirit uh which was uh given to peter and the apostles that in a similar way it was a mercy killing to uh to end their physical existence while taking their souls uh back to back to the lord you know their spirits returning to the lord so what i want to look at uh so comparing these things we say well okay if god is so holy being in his so the temptation here is that god is so holy the temple presence is so holy the ark of the covenant is so holy these things are so holy that they're they're dangerous um i so <laughs> last night i sent you that link i'm gonna i'm gonna quote not myself i'm gonna quote c.s lewis um C.S. Lewis in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, talks about God as Aslan. It's not a, it's not a particularly 
you know, couch metaphor. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a, meeting a lion. Uh, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And there's this concept that Lewis kind of put forward that that Aslan is not, Aslan is not a house cat. Aslan is not a declawed cat. Aslan is deadly. The presence mm. of the Lord is deadly. The, the, the special things of God are, in fact, deadly if misused. Anybody who's a gun, uh, I would say a gun owner, I would say a responsible gun owner. Anybody who's a responsible gun owner knows at least a degree of the respect for, for the firearm. Firearms are absolutely deadly. They're also wonderful things that can be used for great good, can be used for entertainment, can be used for all kinds of things if used appropriately. That being said, you shouldn't disrespect firearms and you know play with them and point them at, at, at each other, do, do things like that. They are, they are, in fact, powerful. They are, in fact, deadly, not something to be trifled with. But then again, not necessarily something that's, that's bad just because it's dangerous. And so what yeah. I wanted to contrast with this concept of the Ark of the Covenant is, uh, is the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 11. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and following says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So if the Lord's Supper has this degree, has some degree of, of dangerousness, so people aren't, you know, getting immolated or, or falling down dead because they touch, you know, they touch the, the Lord's Supper, but they are dying because they're disrespecting this, this holy gift in the presence of God and the body and the blood. Uh, there, is, there is a correlation here. There is, there is a connection here. And the temptation of seeing something so powerful and so dangerous is saying, you know what, if this is so dangerous, I want nothing to do with it. Uh, yes, yes, it is a blessing from God, but I want nothing to do with it. And going back right. to why first, why risk? Why risk it if yeah, you why, don't know the why risk it? I could, yeah, I could screw it up. You could be like Ananias and be like, um, or not Ananias. Why give? Uh, why give a gift like, to God well, at all if 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 my intentions aren't pure enough? Then He may just smite me dead. Yeah, right. Well, and you you yeah. you don't even know that you did something wrong. It could be by pure happenstance, and it's like why risk it? Well, so this is this is what's. I think it's particularly fascinating about, about Uzzah. Well, David in first Chronicles 13 at the, at the very end of the story. So, so Uzzah dies and David is angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and he's, and he named the place after him. And then in verse 12, uh, first Chronicles 13, verse 12, it says, and David was afraid of God at that day. He said, how can I bring, bring the Ark of God home to me? This is David's job to bring the Ark of the covenant back. And now after seeing after, Oh, Oh, God is serious. God is dangerous. I forgot. After seeing this, he says, you know what? Maybe I don't want the Ark of the Covenant in my house. And what he does is he, is he gives it to, um, he puts it in the house of Odom, Obed-Edom, the, the Gittite. So not even an Israelite. He puts it in the house of this other guy. He's like, you know what? <laughs> it's radioactive. Let's just stick it in your house instead. Right. And this is absolutely a sinful a, a sinful response to, well, you know, the Lord's Supper is dangerous, giving to God, co communicating with God is dangerous, going to the temple is dangerous, being in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant is dangerous, therefore, I want nothing to do with, I don't want to even be in the presence of this blessing of God. And, and of course, God could have, you know, resolved the situation with more smitings, but instead what he does is he ends up blessing, blessing the house of Obed-Edom for, for three months. Um, he blessed Obed-Edom and all that he has, and then I, I think this is also in, um, I'm trying to remember where the parallel here is in, in Samuel, one of the Samuel books, is that David basically sees that God is, that the presence of the Ark of the Covenant in this guy's house is blessing him, that it's a good thing, and David realizes, oh yeah, this is good for me. Okay, so this is good for us. Okay, I will bring it into, I will bring it into my house after, I will, I will bring it into Israel Right. And that actually perfectly leads back to what I talked about when it comes to trusting the Lord is that because they did not trust what the Lord had said and they had disobeyed him, even in uh, Usa's case where they put the Ark of the Covenant in like a carriage, which was not what the instruction of the Lord was. 
they thought maybe they thought oh it'd be more convenient be you know more stable they did not trust what it was made for they did not trust the word of the lord to fulfill what he had said and because of that they got they got bit in the butt for it it, it really came back to bite them and uh, i think that's a perfect illustration of the person who loses trust who loses faith in the lord ultimately if you don't trust his promises to be forgiving to be merciful sort of leading back to the person who is constantly dreading the uh the wrath of the lord to be constantly dreadful of the wrath of the lord means you do not trust his promises you don't have that faith to forgive you of your sins correct yeah and that leads you away from repentance when he says specifically it is his kindness and his mercy that should lead you to repentance and to take a woe is me i have to be you know absolutely perfect to come receive the grace of god then that just completely uh eradicates the whole idea of grace being a free gift to us we don't we don't earn it of ourselves because that means we are trusting in our own ability rather than the ability of the cross and of Jesus's sacrifice. We take the trust away from God and we put it on ourselves. Yeah. These are, I mean, we keep coming back to this, this, this point that we somehow both stumbled on is that these are two extremes of, of, of kind of, of sinful, sinful recognition of God is either being flippant, being dismissive of God, uh, not treating holy things as holy, not treating powerful things as powerful and dangerous as one extreme. And then the other extreme, um, being so afraid, but being afraid in a sinful way. Th think about the contrast. Think about the contrast between Peter and Judas after their both grave sins. So Judas be betrays Christ. Peter denies denies Christ three times. He who denies me before others, I will deny before my father, Jesus says. This is a, this is a serious thing that Peter has done. And the Bible kind of I like the Greek. Uh, they, they, there are two different words used for the grief that they feel. And, and we classify one as repentance and the other as a sort of self-centered navel-gazing. So Peter's is, uh, is metanoia. This means a change of heart uh, or a change of noia. Yeah. Uh, Peter has a change of mind, basically. Uh, and then there's metamelomai, which is what, what Judas feels. Judas is grieved by his sin, but not in such a way that he fears God and loves God in such a way that he runs from God and that he ends up killing himself. Uh, contrast, again, contrast Peter's repentance and returning to Christ in repentance and faith. Contrast that with Adam and Eve in the garden with their sin. When they, when they sinned, what did they do? They hid themselves from God. They ran away from God. They tried to make distance with the one person who could have fixed this. this. And, I mean, how many, how many examples does the Bible have to give us that... Yeah, you know, if you get in trouble, if you crash your dad's car, you could run away, yes. <laughs> but if you're but your dad loves you, yeah, he may he may be furious with you, but the fury and the wrath of your dad is in love and that is a million times better than just saying, you know what, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pack myself a bindle like a hobo and then just disappear for the rest of my life. Like like run back to your father. Yes, take your take your licks. But but man, is it so much Correct. better to, to experience the love of God. Right. And in the same way, it's like not everybody who is um, in the case of like Ananias and uh, Sapphira, um, God ending your existence on earth could be out of mercy and love for you rather than out of just pure vengeful anger and immediately sending you to hell. In a, in a similar way, like say there's a uh, person who commits a heinous crime, one that warrants the death penalty. That person can still receive grace and mercy if they repent and believe, but they still have to pay the price on earth. They still, for the betterment of other people, because it could be a habitual sin that they deal with, they may never be able to uh, fully get rid of this. You know, it may be like a, uh, I'm, uh, what's the, like psychotic, uh, dis like a psychotic disorder. Right. Um, correct. So in a way, it's like they still have to pay the price. They still present a danger to even themselves and other people. But in that moment, they have a moment of repentance where they're like, yeah, I actually have to think about what, where I'm going, what I'm going to do. Um, and where my life is going to be after I die. 
So in a way, God can end your existence early in order to save you from further offending either the Holy Spirit or the church around him. Yeah, death isn't always, I mean, death is the unnatural separation of body and soul, and death is the, is the unfortunate consequence of sin existing in the world, but death isn't always necessarily a punishment for the person who dies. Um, sometimes death, I mean, this is this is something that we can accept as Christians. Sometimes death is a mercy. Sometimes sometimes death is for the benefit of the person who dies, and and this is really difficult when we're losing our loved ones. Uh, when there's somebody, you know, a loved one of ours who dies in the hospital, we say, well, I would rather not lose them at all. But at the same time, right, death, just like why would if God truly loves us, why wouldn't He save you know, everyone? Why, why yeah, why would He get rid of all sickness? Keep them alive, yeah. But I mean, this is well, the promise of God is that eventually eventually all sickness, all sadness, all disease will be gone eventually. And this is what we have the hope in, the eternal hope, uh, that no matter what happens on this earth, no matter what we endure in this earth, we know how it all ends. So, you know, any, any step mm -hmm. along the way can be, can be any degree of, uh, of miserable, and it is. We shouldn't downplay that, but we can keep our hopes up because we know where this car is going. We know where we're going to get to uh, at, at the end. Uh, it perfect, the perfect healing of being in heaven may not be something we... well. It should be something that we want for our loved ones, but um, and I, I had a, I had a whole different I'm collecting together passages uh, in Scripture that sound almost that that sound almost suicidal, for lack of a better word, where there is people talking about like I wish that I was dead, and it all and not necessarily being a sinful thing that they say this. One of my favorite examples, obviously, is in in Philippians, I believe, um, I believe chapter four, uh, where Paul is talking about that he wishes. Um, it would be better for him if he was in heaven, but it's better for the rest of the people that he's around and continuing to write epistles and be an apostle and stuff like that. So he'll trust whichever direction God, God chooses. But I think there's a Christian understanding of death of, okay, well, you know, death is a, for a Christian, death is a, is a temporary setback. Death has no sting. It has, the, the word is for stinger, not for, you know, the, the pain, the sensation of a sting. Death wears your sting. It's, it's a toothless cat. It bites you. But what harm can it ultimately do at the end? At a certain point, it de detaches. And I think you wanted to lead into a uh, comparison between the ark and baptism. Oh, baptism. Um, well, I didn't between the ark and baptism. I meant uh, between the ark and, um, and, and communion, this idea that we shouldn't, ah. we shouldn't fear communion, we shouldn't run away from it because we're afraid that we're going to do it wrong. But in the same way, um, the same, so I, I was just thinking, just, I mean, as you mentioned it right now, of, of, of baptism and the fear with baptism, this is, so people ask me, say, well, why don't you just go baptize random people on the street? Why don't you just go around slinging, slinging water on random people and just baptize everybody? If baptism saves, why not just baptize everybody? Well, the fact of the matter is that you can reject your salvation, Acts 751, you can resist the Holy Spirit. You absolutely can make a shipwreck of your faith. And for baptism, what you're doing in baptism, among other things, is you're painting a target on the person. You're saying, this person is now an enemy of God. Or not an enemy of God, excuse me. This person is now an enemy of Satan. This person is now an enemy of Satan. You have now just put the devil's crosshairs on a person. So if you're going to baptize somebody, and then they're going to be raised in a household that hates God, in an atheist household, you're actually making it more difficult for them to, to persist in faith. So... The, the, the question is, okay, well, should I just wait until the end? I, I forget who it was. It was um, uh, 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 Constantine. Should I not just wait until the end of my life to be baptized um, because I don't want to be baptized and then sin again after baptism, and then, you know, that's a whole thing. And I don't want to be baptized and be, you know, be attacked by the, by the devil constantly. Uh, same thing uh, I'd say about ordination, although you can argue about whether or not that's a that's a sacrament. I would say it's not, but um, ordination. If you go into the pastoral office and you start doing God's work, the devil will target you. He will target you. He will target your family. He will target your children, your wife. He will target everything you have and everything you love, and God will permit some degree of suffering and some degree of harassment from, from the devil and from his demons against right. you. Right, in the case of Erasmus and, and Sapphira, like the devil like had a whole grip on their heart, as, as he says, Satan filled their whole heart to commit them to do this. Right. So, so, so the, 
So the question is, okay, if these things are dangerous, if communion is dangerous, if being in the presence of the ark is dangerous, if, if baptism is dangerous, if becoming a pastor is dangerous, if it is dangerous to to give a gift before God and, and, and potentially be tempted with you know withholding some of that, what if you know the you know the person who reads this the the story of Ananias and Sapphira and they're giving they're giving their their weekly offering, uh, and they say, well, what if I'm not giving it with with perfect intentions? Is God going to smite me down? Maybe I shouldn't give anything at all, or, or you know, what do I even do? Um, Right. Yeah, it's it's it, you let the you let the fear cripple you. God has given these wonderful things. The gift of Ananias and Sapphira was not just because God likes sitting on a golden throne. The gift of Ananias and Sapphira was because God was going to use that money, use that land to to bless other Christians, to take care of other Christians, to act out love for for other Christians. This is a benefit. It is a good thing. You know, give it a joyful heart. Uh, God loves a joyful giver. That kind of thing. Um, right. And I think um, the example. Uh, the example theme in this can also play a part in that. And since this is the early church, um, some of the theologians have uh, theorized that um, God making an example of uh, Ananias and Sapphira was to both uh, show God's sovereignty, his power so that they should fear him and not become complacent, but also to show the authority of the apostles as well. Do you yeah. think that plays a part into it? Well, so this is I, I, yes, I think that's absolutely one of the one of the common themes of miracles. Why does God do miracles? One of the common themes of miracles is that God is demonstrating that either He is sovereign or that the person that He's doing the miracle through has some authority. So people are being you know healed or demons are being cast out or whatever through the apostles. This is their demonstration of authority. The prophets, remember Elijah, I mean, Elijah and Elisha and all these prophets in the Old Testament, a lot of times miracles were done through them, not because they were magically, sacerdotally, you know, more powerful. They, you know, they rolled higher on their their intelligence score and cast more spells. Um, but actually it would be a... It would be charisma, I think, wisdom for cleric. Anyways, it, it's not it's not because they're magically special in and of themselves, but that God was using the miracle to demonstrate the authority that Peter had, which was the uh, one of the apostles of of the church, a represent a sent one from God. So yeah, I, I absolutely think that that's a great way that he's that he's he's marking uh, Peter and the church. I don't think it was just Peter. I think it was also. You know, because because Peter was overseeing these things, but the gift was supposed to be going to to the church, to the congregation of of believers, a koinonia, uh, and to be shared among these. And God was saying, "These are my people. You will not cheat God, and you will not cheat my people without consequence." Um, so mm. we're we're actually we're about a minute minute or two after after an hour. So I'd like to start wrapping it up here. Uh, I'm going to give you my final, just a final thought, and then I'll ask for your final thoughts. Um, I pulled out which Greek New Testament is this a Novum Testament Graeca or uh, yes, yeah, a Nestle Island. Um, so uh, back all the way back at the beginning, you were talking about the Book of Acts and and how it talks about the lives of the the apostles. And I was gonna, I, and, and I was curious exactly how the Greek the Greek name for the, <laughs> for the book was because the, the Greek names for for example Matthew. The book of Matthew is, is kata, which means against or according to, kata mathion or whatever. I think that's his name in Greek. So according to Matthew. So the book, the gospel of Matthew is actually the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Um, the word, uh, the, uh, do you want to guess off the top of your head maybe uh, what, what, the, what the name for Acts is in Greek? Uh, huh. <laughs> you can guess in English what you think the Greek translation is for X. Um, yeah. I feel like that is something that someone told me a long time ago or something I learned in class a long time ago. Um, and just, uh, it's, it's skipped my mind. It's, it's, it's um, not super duper important to remember this, but as soon as I say it, you're going to understand immediately. There we go. So blue link, put in the, put in the, the chat, the right, acts of the, the apostles. Of the apostles. So the Greek phrase is praxis or praxis apostolon, praxis apostolon. Uh, so, you know what praxis is? So praxis is practice. It's your your right, action. Practice. So so praxis apostolon. Um, but anyway, so I, I I had brought that out. I had this sitting on my desk for the past hour. I was gonna, I was, I was gonna say. Oh, by the way, it's called praxis apostolon. You know, show off that I could read read the Greek. <laughs> it never came up. So that's my final final thought. Do you have any uh, any quick final thoughts that you want to get out before we end the episode? Um, just. 
take the lesson uh, in summary, fear the Lord. That is the beginning of all wisdom. But understand that he is a gracious God and his mercy does endure forever. And to trust in his word that he does want what's best for you. He wants you to be saved and he wants to bring you into his fold. Uh, do not fear the wrath of God, um, but rather trust in him and rather be uh, fearful for those who do not put their trust in him because those are the ones that will incur the wrath of God. So, yeah, I've got, I've got some Scottish ancestry and the, um, the crest, my Scottish crest is uh it's, it's, a, it's a portrait my last name isn't Monroe, but I'm related to the Monroes. And the depiction, oh. the, the crest is a um, is a Scottish, it's a tower. And the tower is burning <laughs> down, and it says the Monroe Tower is burning. But the the phrase that I guess uh, goes with, with my clan is dread God. Dread God. <laughs> Which I think is fantastic. Uh, if, I were, if I was a tattooing individual, that might be kind of high on the list of, uh, of ones that I might get. Well, thank you all. Uh, thank you for participating. Thank you for Christ Court for allowing us to host us here. Thank you for the audience, the people who, who contributed and, uh, and were talking in chat. Thank you for everybody who's listening. Thank you for to Stigma the Artist. Thanks be to God that we have the ability to do, to do this sort of thing. God bless you all and take care. <laughs>